0: So just to kind of orient us to what we're going to be doing over the next uh, 10 weeks, we'll be talking again about New Testament theology. And so what is theology? I wanted to start with that. What is theology? Theology is formed from two words, theos, which in Greek means God, and logos, which in Greek means a word. So theology is a word about God. It is a, a way of uh, looking at who God is as he's revealed himself to be. And no matter who you are, you are a theologian. Everybody in this room is a theologian. Everybody has some sort of conception of who God is. So even if you are an agnostic or you're an atheist or whatever it might be, you have some sort of idea about God. So even the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a theological statement. That's a statement about God. And so everyone is a theologian. The question is, are you a good one? Are you a theologian whose theology accords with, corresponds with God as he's revealed himself to be? Because it doesn't matter just if you're a theologian, because everybody is. It matters if you're a good theologian. If your theology is true, if it's faithful, if it accords with God as he's revealed himself to be. And so that's what theology is. New Testament theology in particular is looking at, at least how we're going to do the course, looking at these various themes that we see throughout the New Testament and examining them and uh, and kind of holding them up to the light, kind of like a diamond. You look at it, and uh, from different angles, there's different uh, glimmering and shimmers and so forth. And so that's what we are attempting to do in our time together over these 10 weeks is hold up these various Themes that the New Testament is going to emphasize, and in particular, looking for one sort of uh, linking idea, unifying idea, and that is the kingdom of God. This massive element to both the Old Testament and the New Testament as God has revealed himself to be and so that's what we'll be doing over the next 10 weeks and and the reason that this is so important the reason that uh, that studying theology is so important for us is because uh, if you will uh, theology is a ceiling and your worship can only rise as high as your theology Your understanding of who God is is going to, in some sense, cap your ability to worship him uh, correctly. Or, to use another analogy, uh, theology is the fuel for your worship. And the more that you understand who God is and what he has done, the more uh, fuel there is to flame your worship. And so that's why theology is important. That's why it's important that we have good theology, you know, wet Uh, Wood doesn't burn all that well. And so we want good, faithful theology so that our worship might rise. And along with our worship, other responses to God, such as the way that we pursue uh, justice, the way that we pray, the way that we all of these sorts of things are affected by our uh, theology. And so what we're going to be doing over this particular time together, this hour or so that we're in this room this morning is we're really going to be kind of taking our time getting to the New Testament. And so this is a New Testament theology course, but this entire first week, we're not really going to spend much time at all in the New Testament. And the reason is because what we want to do is we want to kind of orient you to the background, some of the developments that are going on historically before we get to the New Testament. It's kind of like if you ever go uh, to Israel, oftentimes if you go as part of a tour, then you land in Tel Aviv, And then you drive up the coast, and you see Caesarea, and then you go up to where uh, Elijah's ministry was, and then you go over, you head east to Galilee, and you see all of the, the sites that are around Galilee, and then you head down the Jordan River, and you go to the Dead Sea, and you've really been in country for about eight days or so before you actually get to Jerusalem. So by the time you get to Jerusalem, there's this sense of angst, there's this sense of longing, there's this sense of expectation, because you know Jerusalem is this critical city in the life of Israel. So that's kind of what we're doing this morning, It's kind of going to to take a little bit of a tour of the kind of the contours of history in order to really prepare us and see what's going on uh, in the New Testament. And so... We'll just kind of fly over the Old Testament this morning, and then we'll really land in the inter- intertestamental period, which we'll talk about here in a few moments. So as, as it relates to the Old Testament, what is the Old Testament? This was a uh, definition by G.K. Bill. He said, the Old Testament is the story of God who progressively reestablishes his new creational kingdom out of chaos over a sinful people by his word and spirit through promise covenant, and redemption, resulting in worldwide commission to the faithful to advance his kingdom and judgment for the unfaithful unto his glory. That's what uh, the kind of the theme of the Old Testament is. And so we're going to pull a couple of of key motifs from the Old Testament. And what we want to do, again, is just kind of fly over them. So if you've been on a plane and your pilot ever said, look out the you know out the left windows and you 'll notice there 's the grand canyon you 're not actually going to the grand canyon you 're just kind of flying over and he 's noting that 's where it is that 's kind of what we 'll be doing this morning we 'll be talking about here 's this theme here 's this theme here 's this theme, and then in the future weeks we 'll actually come and land at these particular cities and camp out on them um, a bit more and so we we'll just kind of fly over this morning so One of the things, again, that we'll be really exploring over the course of these 10 weeks is is the concept of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? So if you will, imagine a world that has absolutely no resistance to God. Imagine a world in which there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no chaos, there's none of that. That's what the kingdom of God is. That's what creation is working towards. That's what unravels in the fall with the the advent of sin. But that is what we're moving back towards. It's this concept that uh, in the Old Testament is known as shalom, this idea of peace, prosperity, wholeness, and so forth. That's the image of the kingdom of God. We'll spend an entire week, I think it's next week that Zach's going to talk about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? If we're looking at the New Testament through this lens of the kingdom of God, we want to have a, uh, a really, really tight and comprehensive dep- definition of it. And so that's what Zach will do next week. So I'll move on for now. The next theme that we'll, uh, we'll see over and over throughout the Old Testament is that of monotheism that not only is uh, the Old Testament telling the story of the kingdom, but it's telling the story of a king, and that king is Yahweh. That king is Yahweh. You might have known uh, the name uh, Jehovah, which is actually just a, a misunderstanding of the, the original uh, language of Hebrew. It's actually Yahweh. And, uh, and so this is the divine name as God has revealed himself and Yahweh is the king. He's the only king. Isaiah 43, 10, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Deuteronomy 4, 25, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other beside him. At the same time, in the midst of this this idea of monotheism that saturates the Old Testament, there are these little hints along the way that speak to some sort of plurality that we'll see blossom in the New Testament with the idea of Trinitarianism, which is, again, something we'll camp out on uh, over our time together in the, the next few weeks. The next theme that we'll explore is creation, and this is at the heart of the Old Testament Uh, the very beginning of the Old Testament has us recognize there is a fundamental distinction between creator and creation. And this is unlike all the surrounding peoples of the ancient Near East. So if you've ever heard of of, uh, all kinds of ancient Babylonian creation myths, Enuma Elish, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, and so forth, all of these old stories that we found, and in all of them, uh, creation is kind of an overflow of the creator. It's almost like the God in those stories cuts off his finger or something like that. And that's planted and that becomes the material world. It's only in this uh, Jewish context that we, we see this firm distinction between uh, creator and creation such that there's no overlap between uh, the two. And, uh, and so it's from this perspective that we even get the idea of sin, which is trying to mingle the two. What you have in sin is you have a creator who creates uh, creatures, and those cre- uh, creatures reject their creator, and they worship and serve creation instead. And so that's another theme that we'll see explored Uh, And then along with that, uh, creation, we have mankind. That mankind is created as the chief of creation and as the image of God. In order to really understand what what we're talking about here, and again, we're going to come back to all of these things, but think of of the idea, even that phrase, created in the image of God. Now, if you are uh, a king in the ancient Near East, what you would often do is you would build gardens. You would build these elaborate gardens. So the Hanging Gardens of Babylon or Solomon, if you go and you read uh, the writings of of Solomon and so forth, you read about all of these gardens. Ecclesiastes in particular talks about how he builds these massive central park-sized sort of gardens as as a testament to his beauty. And then what you would do is you would build this statue in the middle of it. And you'd place this statue there in the middle of the garden. And on that statue, there would typically be some sort of a, a depiction of you. So that whenever anybody entered into that garden, they could say this garden is in the dominion of Solomon or Nebuchadnezzar or whoever it might be. Now think about the significance of that imagery in relation to the Garden of Eden. What does God do? He creates a garden... He puts man in it as a statue, as an image of his glory to show that, they, that his dominion is exercised in this place. And then what does he call them to do? He says, go and subdue the earth, exercise dominion over it, and go fill it. In other words, make the rest of this world look like this garden. That's what's going on there with mankind. And then sin, obviously is seen as treason against the king. It's this cosmic act. It's not just an individual act. It's an act against all of creation, which is why when mankind sins, there's all of these fractures that take place. Man is uh, divided from his creator. That's how we typically think of sin. But there's also all of these horizontal elements as well, as anybody who's ever had a fight with their spouse can testify. That sin has fractured now that relationship that should exist, that, that perfect harmony that should exist between husband and wife or between brothers and friends or whatever it might be. Anyone who's been stabbed in the back and be betrayed can see those horizontal elements. But it's also fractured man's relationship with uh, uh, creation, with the created world as no longer does, uh, does the earth uh, happily yield its fruit There is now sweat. There's now a curse that lingers over creation. And so sin is this this act of cosmic treason that's affected the entirety of creation, to use the language of, of Romans 8, that it's been subjected to futility, and the result of that is earthquakes and tsunamis and war and bloodshed and on and on and on. And God curses man as a result with banishment from the garden. Go out from the garden, and, uh, and death. And there is this establishment of this competing kingdom. You have the kingdom of God, and now you have the kingdom of man. But it's not man who sits as the head over this second kingdom. It's actually Satan. It's the enemy. It's the accuser. It's the adversary. And so you have this idea, because of this sin, you have this idea, in light of God's mercy and grace, You have his means of redemption through covenant, this relationship that he establishes with his people where he promises to be their God, to love them, to save them, to sanctify them, to call them into a new land and so forth. We'll be exploring that uh, over the next few weeks. And then redemption, as a result of this covenant, part of the uh, the stipulations of the covenant is that God would redeem his people. And you have this picture in the Old Testament of God leading out Israel from Egypt, leading them out of a land of slavery into a land of promise, into a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's a picture of us and our salvation. That's a physical picture of the spiritual reality of what we have experienced. We were in bondage. But those of us who are in Christ have been set free from bondage, from spiritual bondage to self and to sin and to Satan. And we're being delivered. Right now we're in this, this what Hebrews would describe as us in this wilderness as we await the promised land that is uh, to come. And so we have this concept of redemption. And it's all leading towards the Temple and the temple is this place we 'll talk about this even in our sermon this morning as we look at Jesus cleansing or clearing out the temple that just happens to be where we are. The temple is the place where heaven and earth meet so if you think of of uh, the Garden of Eden, one of the, the glorious things about that is you see God walking among uh, his uh, creatures, so you have God walking there in the garden. Heaven and earth are overlapping with sin. You have this division between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, between heaven and earth. And the temple is this little slice where there's a bit of overlap. And then we see in Jesus Christ as the restored temple, this greater overlap that's waiting for future consummation whenever he returns. So that's kind of some of the key themes of the Old Testament that we'll be looking at over the uh, next few weeks. But... I want to turn our attention now to everyone's favorite subject, which is intertestamental history. Everybody loves intertestamental history. It's one of your favorite things, I'm certain. And the reason that this is important is because uh, reading the New Testament without a good understanding of the, the events that are happening in the 400 years or so, between when the uh, the uh, Old Testament canon closes and when the events take place that, uh, that begin... The New Testament. There's 400 or so years there. Without understanding what's going on there, it's all, it's like kind of watching uh, those two dimensional cartoons, uh, maybe the black and white cartoons from the 30s or whatever, with uh, a strange looking uh, prototype of Mickey Mouse or something like that. And and think about the difference between watching those cartoons and then watching one of the new Pixar films, and just the the radical difference that exists between these two different types of cartoons, that's kind of like reading the New Testament. Whenever we begin to understand this this backdrop, this, this background, this context for it, it really adds not only color and texture, it adds a third dimension to our understanding of the Scripture. It makes it much more holistic and robust and so forth. So let me give you a couple of examples of this that we'll talk about here in a second. So in Israel's history... You have the destruction of the temple. A number of times, uh, there are foreign armies that come in and destroy and defile the temple. Now, in light of this, you can really grasp why it is when Jesus comes along and says something like, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it, they don't think he's playing around. They're very upset by this because they've experienced in their history a number of times where foreign armies had come in and done that very thing. We'll talk about that um, as we go on. Think about if someone were to make a joke about blowing up the World Trade Center. As, as Americans, especially if you are a, a New Yorker, if you're a New Yorker, are you going to think that's funny? Absolutely not. That's not going to be a laughing matter you're probably going to get beat up for that. That's what happens when Jesus comes in and begins to talk about destroying the temple. But we need to understand the context for that. The fact that that had happened a number of times in their history. Or the fact that during and after this period where, where Israel is exiled from the promised land, there was this intense soul searching. And in, in the process of this soul searching, they're asking themselves this question. Why aren't we living in the land? God promised us this land. We're not living in the land. Why aren't we living in the land? They come to this conclusion. They come to the conclusion, the reason we're not living in the land is because we did not uphold the Torah. We did not uphold God's law. And so therefore, we've been cut off. We've been exiled. So they come back to the land, and what are they passionate about? This time, we're going to get it right. This time, we're going to follow God's law to the letter. And what does Jesus begin to come and do? He begins to challenge that. He begins to do things on the Sabbath that they said you couldn't do on the Sabbath. He begins to upend their purity laws and said, doesn't matter the outside of the cup. You need to clean the inside of the cup. Or when Paul will say things like, circumcision doesn't count for anything. doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. You can see why this would infuriate them because they think you're uh, encouraging us towards sedition. You're going to get us exiled again. And that's not an option for us. So we're going to kill these people. Or you get an understanding of why first century Jews had this intense disdain for tax collectors. You read about that. It's not like you and I might have some disdain for someone who works for the IRS. That's not at all what's going on here. It's the fact that tax collectors were leveraged by the Roman army. And uh, and so their job is basically to support an oppressive people. So you're a traitor in the minds of your countrymen. You're selling your services in order to support this foreign, invading, oppressive army living in the land. And on and on we could go with just all of these ways that if we we get to understand this backdrop, it just colors a little bit for us. It's not going to radically change the way that we read the New Testament, but it is going to be very helpful for us as we begin to understand some of the things that are going on. And so as we talk about this transitional period between the Old Testament into the New Testament, this intertestamental period, this period between the two testaments, it's kind of like the, the, the passing of a torch, kind of like a, the swan song. And so we, we had recently the uh, retirement of a basketball legend uh, in Kobe Bryant. And, and if you paid any attention to that, every city he went to, there was some sort of a ceremony for him. They, they presented him with some sort of a, a trophy or a memento or whatever it might be. Same thing happened with Derek Jeter when he re- retired from baseball a couple of years ago. There's, there's typically, uh, if these, these athletes kind of give foresight to this is the end for me, there's this celebration that takes place. But the vast majority of people who retire, they don't get that, right? They just, at the end of the season, they decide, I've had enough. And so there's no sort of swan song. Instead, they kind of... Uh, it's maybe more similar to a kind of a, 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 a someone just kind of grasping or gasping for his last breath. And that's kind of what's going on here with the kingdom. The kingdom has been wobbling for centuries. When we get to the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, king after king after king had risen, and, and yet none of them fulfilled the longing that uh, Israel had none of them could inaugurate this kingdom that uh, God had uh, promised all failed to some degree in fact if you're reading Chronicles Samuels and in uh, and the various uh, other books that tell of this uh, historical uh, events that are happening in Israel's history it's almost like the authors are emphasizing the failures of the king because that's what they are doing. So so there's this king that would arise, and he's David. And you think, surely this is the one. And it seems like he's ruddy, whatever that means. And he's a man after God's own heart. He's victorious in all of his endeavors. And then there's this massive fall from grace. And then his son, Solomon, and his name is even related, Solomon, S L M is related to the word shalom, peace. His name means peace, prosperity, wholeness. Surely this is the one. And then he takes foreign wives and they lead him away and he begins to worship other gods as well. And on and on you can go throughout the history of Israel. Maybe it's Moses. No, he didn't even make it into the promised land. Not David, not Solomon, and on and on you could go until this this bright light That Israel had experienced begins to flicker and fade into the darkness of exile. But there is this little bitty light there in the midst of it. Amos chapter 8, verses 11 to 12 says this Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. This corresponds to this period of exile where there's no prophetic speech. There's no Urim, there's no, Thumen, there's no uh there's no consulting of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is this famine in the place, but there's also a prophecy of a coming day in which the Lord would yet again speak to his people. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So you have this, this Amos prophecy of a coming famine a coming darkness, a coming exile. We see that take place in Israel's history. But also, there is this prophecy that one day, this light that is flickering will be turned on again. And that prepares us for the New Testament. But with these words, with Malachi's final breaths, everything goes dark, and it stays dark, and it stays dark, and it stays dark dark for 400 years imagine what would happen over the span of 400 years a feeling like you have no national identity a feeling like you have no hope no encouragement you have some sense of expectation but eventually it dies over that time the same way that eventually at some point abraham surely began to think sarah surely began to think Maybe this is not happening for us. Maybe we're not going to have kids. Maybe I need to do something with Hagar in order to make this happen on my own. Because the Lord doesn't seem to be faithful to his promises. So Israel begins to uh, teeter there. What's happening in the midst of this 400 years is a world that is in flux. Egypt at this point, who has been most of the Old Testament the world power, the United States, the you know Britain, two hundred years ago or whatever it might be, kind of the world empire, Egypt has crumbled absolutely. What had historically been a a, this major world power, the major world power, uh, was caught in this desperate power struggle, and the result is their their kingdom is divided. And, uh, and they are being choked out by successive uh, empires that would come in and, and, uh, and pull away little pockets on the fringes of their empire. Greece had come up and had been this glorious power. But it, uh, at the time of the, uh, the New Testament, by the time the New Testament comes up, uh, it's fading in the midst of these endless wars that it had Rome, by the close of the intertestamental period, she's ruling the known world, and all roads are leading to her. And uh, Asia eventually is uh, wiped out by Rome. And so, as the Old Testament ends, uh, the the superpower that's controlling much of the world in Israel is Persia. But by the time the New Testament begins, it's Rome that's controlling most of the, the, the world. And so what is it that happens in between? How do we get from uh, Persia to Rome? And so we begin with uh, Assyria. Assyria is the world power towards the end of the Old Testament, and you'll note that they are the, uh, the people that come in and uh, exile the northern kingdom of Israel. They carry off Israel into exile, While Israel, the northern kingdom, is in exile, all of a sudden the Babylonians are going to spring up and they're going to become kind of the major world power. And during their reign, the southern kingdom of Judah is going to be exiled. They're exiled there uh, into the land of Babylon. Uh, After they kind of begin to fade in significance, Persia comes up as the major world power. After that, you have Greece After that, within Israel itself, you have this period of some level of autonomy, and then you have Rome, and so we'll talk about each of those periods uh, in in chronological order. So first you have the Persian period. Persian period is uh, what we're going to see if you're reading books like 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Psalms, various Psalms, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of these books are going to to have some reference to what's going on in Persia, begins with uh, this king called Cyrus that you've probably heard of. He conquers Babylon, and so this begins the Persian period of world dominance. And they do something really interesting in their history, and that is they they institute this policy that allows for conquered people to begin to uh, maintain their local customs and religions. So typically what would happen in most of these world powers is they would come in, they would exile the people, and they would completely try to erase all vestiges of the original culture. And so they would try to assimilate you into their own culture. Persia was a little bit unique because they had this policy that allowed you to still be Jewish. Even though you're there in exile in Persia, you can still be Jewish. In fact... Cyrus went as far as to even allow the Jews, if you remember, to go back into uh, the land of Israel and begin to rebuild uh, and so forth. And so you have this development there in the Persian period that allows for the Jews to maintain some sense of national identity and hope and expectation and so forth, even though they are a conquered and exiled people. After that, you have the rise of the Hellenistic period. Hellenistic refers to Greek culture, and uh, it really begins with Alexander the Great, who was a student of the great philosopher Aristotle. Alexander the Great, probably the greatest uh, general who has ever lived. His, his um, uh, territory stretched all the way from Greece to India. So think about that in terms of uh, east to west, Greece to India, from uh, southern Russia all the way to northern Africa. The, the just sort of the that entire land mass was controlled uh, by him, and yet he died uh, in three twenty three BC. He's not yet thirty three years old. So by the time he was thirty three, he had already conquered most of the known world, and he dies. And as a result, there is this massive power struggle between. His various uh, generals and uh, and the the power is eventually going to be split between two different uh, sides, uh, two different uh, factions. the first one being Seleucids and the second one being Ptolemies. not very this kind of nerdy gang names. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The Seleucids are this northern kingdom. the Ptolemies are the southern kingdom. The Seleucids are up in what would be like modern day Syria. And the Ptolemies are in what would be uh, Egypt. And so there's this massive power struggle that takes place uh, between the two. And Israel is really a land caught in between. So think about even on a map where Egypt is and where Syria is, what's right in between? Israel, all right? And what's the only land route between uh, Asia and uh, Africa? You have to go through Israel. And so it's this land caught in between and so there was this constant pull if you if you think of like tug of war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids for control over Israel because you wanted this control over trade and so there were these pull towards the north and then pull towards the south over and over uh, throughout uh, history so in 311 Israel's under Ptolemy rule that again that's the southern kingdom and, uh, and at this point, you have this adoption of tax collection. So it, at, uh, in 311 B.C., you have the adoption of tax collection, which begins to lay the seeds of distrust for tax collectors. Again, what you are doing is you are effectively taking money from your neighbor in order to pay the army that is oppressing you. And so you have the seeds of distrust that's laid there, That'll blossom fully in the New Testament with this intense hatred that they have. Think about all the times that Jesus is criticized and condemned for eating with tax collectors. Again, tax collectors are not IRS agents. They're rebels. They're seditious. They're traitors. They're hated. And so that begins there with the Ptolemies and their adoption of tax collection In uh, 198 B.C., you have a guy named Antiochus III. He's a Seleucid. Again, that's the northern uh, part. And and they conquer and occupy Israel. And just uh, some 20-something years later, you have a guy named Antiochus IV. He's a very, very important history, uh, a very, very important person in Israel's history. Uh, He was known as uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. We get the word epiphany from that, and uh, which is kind of like a, this revelation or this light, this glorious sort of thing. Most of the people around him, though, knew him as a Tychus Epimenes, which is a Greek word meaning madman, because that's the way that he acted. He was this uh, cruel, vicious uh, leader. And he comes to power, and as a result, he increases taxation, which is not going to be very fun uh, for the Jews. He appoints a, uh, a Benjamite to be the high priest. If you remember, according to Old Testament law, who's supposed to be a high priest? Yeah, someone of the tribe of Levi. But he, uh, because he he takes money off of it, he basically sells it to the highest bidder. And so he allows a Benjamite to be a high priest. Um, they probably could have overlooked both of those things. But then he begins to send an army in, and the army responds by massacring Um, citizens and then he goes again they probably could have dealt with that but then he does something that they absolutely could not deal with and that is he loots the temple he goes into the temple which in and of itself is a no no and he renames the temple and he renames the temple after Zeus Olympius. now if you're a Jew and you uphold to the sacredness of God's name how would you take To suddenly someone coming in, this Gentile coming into the temple, looting it, defiling it, and then renaming it. And not only renaming it, but renaming it after a foreign god. You're going to be furious. And they were. Not only did he do that though, he also erected a statue of Zeus within the temple. And then just as if all of this is not enough, he takes a pig into the temple and he sacrifices the pig in the temple. This unclean animal. And he defiles uh, the temple. So it's kind of like a game of count the red flags in it. You know, It's this Gentile. He goes into the temple. He renames it after a foreign god. He puts a statue of a foreign god in there. He takes an unclean animal in there and sacrifices that unclean animal on the altar in the middle of the temple. So again, this is going to be this massive division between Jews and Gentiles. There's going to be this massive hostility that is going to be simmering in the hearts of the Jews there in this time. And many people viewed this as a fulfillment of what Daniel had prophesied of this abomination of desolation. This abomination of desolation that's going to bring judgment upon the land. And then, as if all of this is not enough, Antiochus, he repressed and banned Judaism as a power play. He thought it was fun. He thought it was fun to just basically make it illegal to practice any Jewish responses. So, again, think about this, what Israel has experienced with this man, coming in and doing all that he's done to defile the temple. Now think about when Jesus comes on the scene. In the book of Mark, which we've been in quite a bit, and we'll get to this passage uh, in a few weeks. Mark 13, 1 through 2, And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you, not, uh, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So now think about Jesus saying these types of things with all of this background in your mind. And there'll be even more of it that we'll see here in a few moments. But think about how you as a first century Jew would respond to that. You'd be furious. You'd be angry. You'd be frightened. Why? Because this is the place where God dwells. This is where God dwells among his people. And if this place is defiled, God doesn't dwell here anymore. And if God doesn't dwell here anymore, that means he doesn't dwell in our midst anymore. Which means we're not God's people anymore. All of a sudden you lose all of your identity. That's what they're fearful of. It begins again to help us to get a greater color for what's going on there in Jesus' ministry. And it, uh, it, it helps us to see why the Jews were so fiercely protective of the temple. And so threatening the temple is this seen as this treasonous, seditious uh, act of a traitor. And it's why it's on the lips of the people at Jesus' trial. It's on the lips of the people while Jesus himself is up on the cross. And this provides this fuel to the fire that's about to erupt in Israel. And that is known as the Maccabean Revolt in the beginning of this period called the Hasmonean dynasty, this, the Maccabean uh, revolt. And so this begins with this priest, and his priest's name is Mattathias. And Mattathias was asked by a bunch of soldiers to uh, offer this sacrilegious sacrifice. He was told to offer this sacrifice that totally would have offended him as a Jew and as a priest. Uh, and so instead of offering that sacrifice, he killed the soldiers... Soldiers had come and told him, offer this sacrifice. He said, no. Instead, he killed the soldiers. And this begins this uh, this period of revolt, so kind of brave heart, uh, if you will, this period that begins this real small uh, movement that becomes this massive thing that's going to ultimately lead towards this period of about 100 years or so in which there is no foreign army that's occupying Israel. They actually win freedom. They win liberty. They win autonomy for about 100 years or so. And this is, these are the events that are traditionally known as Hanukkah. So if you ever wonder where Hanukkah comes from, I learned about Hanukkah from watching the TV show Friends whenever I was a kid. Ross Geller, that's what he, he was like a Hanukkah armadillo or something like that. And, uh, and so this is what Hanukkah celebrates. Hanukkah celebrates this uh, revolt this rebellion by Mattathias against uh, the uh, invading army. And uh, and this is going to really drive this hostility between Jews and Gentiles to a level that even to that point was unprecedented. And uh, and so uh, you'll see as a result of this, the, the reason that the people in the New Testament the Jews in the New Testament are so um, upset by any mention of bringing the Jews in. So we'll even talk about that a little in the sermon in a little bit uh, where Jesus talks about how the, uh, the temple was a house of prayer for the nations or for the Gentiles. will talk about that in a little bit. Paul, in Acts 22, is, uh, is speaking to a crowd and he said, go. Uh, he's he's quoting what the Lord said to him, and he said to me, that's the Lord said to me, Paul, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, the crowd listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. See, the Jews there were, were fine with him talking about all of the various things that he was talking about. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, the resurrection, all those kinds of things. But the moment he says... This somehow includes Gentiles away with this man. He can't live. Why? Because Gentiles are unclean. We know what happens whenever you try to allow Gentiles into the area. There is judgment. There is uh, massacres and so forth. So the Jews are fine with Paul until he begins to talk about Gentiles. And then they're enraged. So again, there's this increased tension, this increased hatred, this increased hostility. Don't think, when you think about it, don't think modern uh, racism. So race, obviously, this this big issue in our, our current events right now, uh, and as much as there's still uh, racism in the, the U.S., don't think about this type of racism. Think uh, 19th century uh, American racism. Think slavery. That's the sort of hostility, that's the sort of hatred, that's the sort of bigotry that's going on there in uh, Israel as it relates to the Gentiles. And, uh, and so Mattathias, he leads this revolt. He has a son whose name is uh, Judas Maccabeus, which means hammer, kind of like the uh, ancient Jim Adler or something like that. Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, that's why we call it the Maccabean Revolt. But within a couple of centuries, uh, so Judas is is relatively, uh, he's a a pretty good leader. He kind of restores, as Mattathias had done, kind of restores this this Jewish purity of their traditions and so forth. But within a couple of generations, uh, all of a sudden, there is no longer any desire whatsoever for religious purity. It has become... Their motivations have moved from religious in nature to purely political uh, in uh, nature. So an example of that, you have a guy named Alexander Janius. It was about uh, 100 or so B.C. And uh, and he decided that uh, he did not like the Pharisees and their emphasis upon religious purity. And so his response to that is he's going to get 800 Pharisees and he's going to crucify them. And as they're being crucified, he's going to line up their women and children in front of them so that the last image that they see is their throats being cut. So now think if you are a Pharisee, how you're going to relate to the idea of a king. This is even a Jewish king. There's fear based. We see what happens when people get power. And you see how they can, uh, when Jesus comes on the scene and people begin to say, he is the king, you can see why there is this fear, why there is this distrust of them. They've seen what's happened, what happens to those in their own party who dissent to the king. Janius has a wife, Alexandra. She's much more supportive of Jewish law. She's generally well-liked. But she has two sons. Those two sons... Uh, get into a power struggle, who's going to be the ultimate successor. Both of them decide at this point, let's appeal to Rome. Let's appeal to Rome and see who is going to be the, um, uh, the successor on the basis of who Rome says. That backfired because Rome's response was, neither of you are going to be. We want this land. And so they send the, the general Pompey into the area, uh, he invades Jerusalem, and yet again, he enters into the temple. Now, not nearly the amount of disrespect that Antiochus uh, had. Uh, he didn't uh, sacrifice a pig or anything like that or set up a temple in there, but he did go in. He went all the way into the Holy of Holies, which even uh, you know the most revered Jews, even the high priest could only go in there one day, a year, and yet he goes into the Holy of Holies just kind of as a tourist. He just wanted to check it out. He had heard it's this place of holiness. He had heard it's this place of glory, and so he thought, "I'm going to go and check it out." And he goes into it, thus ending this period of of Jewish independence for the next uh, two thousand years, basically, until the events of the uh, the Balfour Declaration and so forth in the nineteen forties and Israel returning back to their land. So the moment that Pompey invades Jerusalem, uh, Israel no longer has any sort of autonomy within their own own land. So now this is the second time in about 100 years that the temple has been defiled. Again, you get a sense for why it is that they're so um, upset by Jesus and his talk about Uh, the, uh, the temple. When we talk about defiling the temple, we're not talking about someone tracking mud through your house. We're talking about the anger you would feel if someone assaulted your wife or your child or something like that. That's the way that these Jews viewed the defiling of the temple. It's like if someone defiled your spouse. So there's this increased hostility and hatred and Jesus comes right into the middle of it. And he says, I'm going to destroy this temple. And they say, if you destroy the temple, then God won't dwell among us. And if God won't dwell among us, then we're not God's people. And So you only have two options. You have to either believe him or you have to reject him. And if you're going to reject him with these blasphemous statements that he's making, you have to kill him. So you begin to see the reason that they are so untrusting of him and they hate him. So much. This leads us though into the Roman period. In Pompey, the general who had defiled the temple, he appoints a guy named Hyrcanus the second as high priest, and a guy named Antipater as a client king. Antipater he proved himself to be a loyal subject of Rome and of Julius Caesar. Uh, and as a response, Julius Caesar uh, lowers taxes, so the people generally uh, enjoy the freedoms that are given. And he also gives permission to fortify the cities, and he gave uh, certain religious freedoms. It's called religio licita, in other words, legal religion. So in Rome, Judaism was officially a legal religion, which is going to lay the seeds for whenever Christianity is first beginning to blossom there with the the work of the, the apostolic ministry and so forth. Because it's seen as a sect or a part of Judaism, it is then given, it's granted certain uh, freedoms uh, because it's seen as a part of of Judaism. Uh, There's this power struggle that takes place between Antipater's sons, one named Herod, the other one named Aristobulus. Herod triumphs, this is the guy that's known as Herod the Great who's known, as, uh, known historically for two main things. The first one is these massive building projects. So he, he, he kind of beautifies the temple, makes it this glorious structure uh, there on the Temple Mount. He also does things like Masada. If you ever go to Israel, right by the Dead Sea, there's this massive uh, fortress of Masada. And then uh, things like Caesarea Maritima, which are ruins you can still see uh, to this day. So that's the first thing he's known for, just this massive um, building project commitment. He's also known for murder. That's the other thing that he's known for. Towards the end of his reign, he became so increasingly paranoid that he executed several of his sons and, and even his wife. And there's this story about him. That, uh, that he was nearing his death. And as he's nearing his death, he begins to realize, you know, I've, I've really infuriated a lot of my fellow Jews um, because I've killed them. And so no one's going to mourn for me. Whenever I die, no one's going to mourn for me. But, you know, in, in this culture, it's a big thing. The more mourners that you have, the larger your funeral, the more great you are. And so he says, I want to be mourned. And so his response is to go uh, to Jericho, the town of Jericho. He takes all of the men of honor, all of the men of distinction, all of the elite in the area, and he has them put into a cistern. And he gives instructions, and those instructions say, at the moment of my death, put all of those men to death, so that at the moment of my death, the moment of all of those men's death, all of their wives, all of their children, all of the town will mourn and I'll receive their mourning as mourning for me. See, he's a madman, just absolutely insane. This is Herod uh, the Great. So that gives us context. Now, when we understand there is these magi who come from the east, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And what does Herod say? He says, oh, yeah, go out, find him, worship him, then tell me. What does Herod go and do? He goes to Bethlehem, and he kills all the children. You see, this is right within his character. We, we, we kind of wonder about how could someone do How could someone kill babies, these little kids, two years and older? Well, it's the same kind of guy who would just put people to death just so people would mourn his own death. Just an absolute, absolutely insane. So fierce was he that Augustus Caesar, whenever he becomes Caesar, he said that he would, be, he would rather be Herod's pig than his son, which is an interesting play on words. He'd rather be his hus, which is the word for pig, than his huios, which is the word for son. And uh, because Herod, being a Jew, wouldn't be, go anywhere near a pig, but he'd kill his own son. That's the, the meaning there. After Herod's death, the kingdoms divided To his three sons, Archelaus, you see him uh, in places in the scripture, Antipas, the Herod who appears various times in Jesus' adult life. Herod, by the way, is just this title, and so you see Herod a number of times, and so anytime you read Herod, you always have to try to figure out which Herod it's talking about. Uh, Antipas is the one who beheads John the Baptist and is at the trial of Christ and so forth. And then Philip is the other son. Uh, Archelaus and Antipas are eventually banished from their districts. And Israel's uh, united for a season under Herod Agrippa. He's the guy in the first couple of chapters of Acts. If you remember, he stands up and gives this really eloquent speech. And the crowd cries out, the voice of a God and not a man. And he struck down dead for not giving glory to God for his blasphemy. And then there's another Herod, Agrippa II, that's also mentioned in Acts. So again, there's all of these Herods that are mentioned they're all uh, related in some way to Herod the Great and his progeny. During this season, there's this increased polarity with Rome uh, for military, uh, religious, and socioeconomic reasons. Until eventually, Jerusalem is going to be sacked in seventy A.D. And this event, when when Jerusalem's sacked in seventy A.D., is kind of going to be the the kind of the linchpin or the watershed moment where there's going to be this huge divide between Christianity and Judaism Uh, because the Jews in this moment, they appeal to the Christians in Jerusalem and they say, take up arms with us against Rome. Help us to protect Jerusalem. And the Christians are unwilling uh, to fight uh, against uh, Rome. And so the Jews feel betrayed and there is this uh, divide that takes place. And no longer is Christianity viewed as this sect or subset of Judaism, it's viewed as its uh, its own distinct religion. So there are all these negative factors with Roman rule, with the the defiling of the temple, with the sacking of Jerusalem, with all of these sorts of things. But there are a number also of positive factors that we want to talk about really quickly. So seven in particular, seven positive factors of Roman rule. The first one is in this period, there is this development of what's called a lingua franca, which is a unified language that is Greek. And, uh, and so this politically unified, uh, unified realm, it preserved this linguistically unified people. So although culturally Rome ruled over a, a, a large diverse uh, collection of people, different cultures, different traditions, and so forth, in regards to the language there was a unification of language why is that so such a positive factor because when the apostles begin to go out what's the result they can preach the gospel they don't have to go like of a buddy that's a missionary in Japan and i mean he spent years having to learn japanese that's years that he's not doing much ministry because he's learning the language and so the apostles can immediately go out into the land and begin to preach the gospel in a common language because Rome had unified the language of Greek. There's also this, uh, this thing called Pax Romana, Pax, the word uh, the Latin word for peace, which is for about 200 years there is this peace because Rome ruled over almost everything, the known uh, world. There is this peace that is over the entire Uh, area which aids the spread of the gospel, the distribution of literature and so forth. Because, you know, when you're not writing books and so forth is when you're being persecuted, when there's wars and so forth. And so the fact that there is this peace, it means that you can travel on the roads and you're not as afraid of getting robbed and murdered and so forth or wars breaking out in all of these surrounding areas. There's also advanced transportation and communication systems. It's often been said that, uh, that when the Roman Empire falls, that their communication and transportation systems, we don't see something parallel to that until uh, Reformation Europe. That's what you get with the Dark Ages and so forth. So there's this advancement in communication and transportation system. Again, aiding the spread of the gospel. There's increased urbanization there's this sort of cosmopolitan spirit that transcends national or ethnic barriers, which is why you have these these major cities where there's people from all kinds of cultures that are uh, kind of gathering there. So think of London. If you've ever been through Heathrow or something like that, you're literally seeing the entire world, not literally, you're figuratively seeing the entire world there in the airport because it's a hub That's what uh, many of these cities there in Rome were. So again, someone gets saved. Someone gets saved in Antioch, but they actually live in Rome or they live in Caesarea or they live wherever it might be in Ephesus and they take the gospel back there where there's hundreds of different cultures that are reflected there. People hear the gospel there and it begins to move out. So it's not just Paul going around and seeing cities It's Paul preaching the gospel here, and then those people going out to a dozen different places uh, as well. There's these elimination of cross-cultural barriers which would have spread, which would have halted the spread of the gospel. There's this idea, again, that we talked about of religio licida, that as long as Christianity is viewed as a Jewish sect, it, uh, it has uh, certain legal protections, and, uh, and that continued to be a case until Nero's persecution and then lastly, it's, it, it has one of the most sophisticated judicial systems in all of antiquity, which is why you have this due process. See, even the way that Paul, in his trials, he is uh, protected whenever he's bound. Uh, he's, he's protected in that moment. Whenever he appeals to Caesar, he has that right. So you have these rights and privileges that are extended. All of these things add up. And Galatians 4 talks about this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You can see how there are all these things that are ripe within the Roman Empire that might be referenced here in this fullness of time. The conditions are right for the spread of the gospel. And that's when Christ comes and uh, advents in this world. Just right before we close, I want to talk about a couple of, of different emerging elements in exilic uh, Israel so Israel's been exiled some of the things that are happening in Israel's mind that'll help us and then and then we'll be done the first one being there's this increased interest in angelology and demonology as Israel is in uh, captivity as they're in exile and uh, and the countries that they are in exile uh, have this uh, very established understanding of demons and angels and so forth. And they begin to reflect upon this. And there begins this, this uh, tension even within, uh, within various uh, sects uh, as regards to demons and angels. And you have this divide that takes place between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sadducees say there's no angels, there's no demons, there's nothing like that. The Pharisee says, absolutely, there's angels and demons, and so that that is taking place in post-exilic Israel. There's also this increasingly positive view of human nature. It's called merit theology, uh, which basically consists in either uh, you have to be obedient to get into God's covenant, uh, which is legalism, or you have to be obedient to stay in God's covenant. Covenant. It's grace to get in, but to stay in, you have to to have some sort of works, which is known as Covenantal gnomism. Uh, Zach's going to talk about that at some point when we talk about justification. Not all, believe, not all Jews believe that you had to earn God's favor, but absolutely some of them did. And that's part of the context for what Paul's going to be talking about with justification. that We'll talk about. There also is this idea that if the temple was no longer there, no longer can we offer sacrifices. So what do we substitute for that? The Romans or whoever it is won't allow us to offer sacrifices. So what do we do in the midst of that? And so they began to view prayer and good works to be a sacrifice for sacrifices, sort of a substitute uh, for them. To be a good Jew then meant that you keep the Sabbath, you're circumcised, and you keep the law. These are kind of the merit scouts to be kind of an Israeli boy scout or the merit badges. So you understand why the Pharisees and the Sadducees are upset when Jesus and the apostles and so forth come on and they begin to challenge Sabbath, they begin to challenge the law, they begin to challenge circumcision. You begin to get why it is that they're so upset because for them that is their identity marker, that is for them their symbol. It's like if, if somebody blew up the Statue of Liberty, that's more or so why people are so upset if someone burns a flag or something like that because it's more than just a piece of cloth. It's more than just this copper statue for us. It's a symbol of something. These are the Jewish symbols of identity. And so you get to see why they're so upset at Jesus and Paul and so forth. There's also this increased interest in apocalyptic themes and uh, literature, in particular as they begin to reflect upon this one called the Messiah. So, as we end... Think back, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. The end of the Old Testament says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then everything goes dark, everything goes silent for 400 years, years of reflection, years of repentance, years of silence, and then suddenly... Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And that description is really important camel's hair, leather belt, locusts and wild honey, because that's the way that Elijah has been described throughout the Old Testament. So when Malachi says, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and we turn to the New Testament, And we read of one who's saying the things that Elijah said. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Wearing the clothes of Elijah. We get to understand this angst, this expectation, this longing is near fulfillment. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And for all the ways that you have worked throughout history, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to consider this context and hopefully help us to be better informed when we read the New Testament, to understand the angst, to understand the anticipation, to understand the anger, the antagonism, Lord. And ultimately, to better understand the love and mercy and grace and kingdom of your Son. I pray that you would help us over this next nine weeks or so as we consider these themes of the new testament lord that our hearts would be able to be raised higher that that the flame of our love for you would burn more uh, brightly and hotter lord because our ceiling has been raised and so would you help us get grateful you're a good god your good father who gives good gifts to your children and so we trust that you desire to meet with us through our studies and this time together. I pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.